0: brace yourselves the following presentation is intended only for immature audiences Ugh. well then and god said let there be f bombs and they were good and they multiplied right here in this podcast Hi, and welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. This is episode 17. Oh, you back again? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I hope this is worth it. For better or for worse, our last episode ended in blasphemy. See, I just had to ask whether the nagging and scheming Senora Holzhacker might actually represent the archetypal angel of good conscience, as opposed to the devil of nagging doubt. Yeah, just remember. She was the one doing all the nagging. Busting our wishy-washy husband's balls until he finally agreed to the unconscionable act of abandoning his two children in the forest. <gasps> so, judging her according to the mores and morals of our own zeitgeist, The question is moot. Yeah. Of course she's a devil. There's no way in hell her character could be a metaphor for the Angel of Conscience. Am I right? Or am I right? Yes, you are right. Oh boy. Not only is her plan selfish and evil, she herself seems to be missing a conscience. Oh boy, that's not good. Now the illegality of her suggestion aside... A good conscience would never allow her to live with herself, not after abandoning her children. I am... what I am... the best of the best. Oh dear, that's rather alarming. Now the thing is, though, that's our conscience we're judging her by. Short of mind-reading, we can never know for certain what anybody else's conscience is telling them, especially if their actions and decisions are at a sync with ours. In fact, to show how subjective a conscience really is, it's time to get a little academic. Oh boy. Well, just bear with me, okay? I promise this isn't gonna hurt. According to John Boswell's authoritative book, The Kindness of Strangers, European moors and morals, from late antiquity to the Renaissance, not only allowed for child abandonment, which is not the same as infanticide, but can almost be said to have encouraged it. What? Yeah. For over a thousand years, the European mind... You didn't consider child abandonment heinous, immoral, or illegal. And the culture did nothing to discourage it. On the contrary, unwanted children could, in all good conscience, be sold, given away, or simply abandoned. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye. And on top of that, finding an abandoned child... Ooh, that was like winning the lottery. Hooray! A so-called foundling was the equivalent of free livestock, or a free slave. And the whole process of anonymous abandonment and adoption, was morally akin to dumpster diving. They're free. You have been found. Hey, remember in episode six? No. Yeah, well we already mentioned that child abandonment was something that directly supported the growth of the Catholic clergy via the pious practice known as oblation. What's that you say? As the medieval version of Catholic charities, if not the uh, Salvation Army, oblation allowed families to, uh, donate unwanted children to the church. And these children were in turn, pledged to become clergy. Say your prayers, dear. And check this out. According to Professor Boswell, up until the origination of state-sanctioned foundling homes, or orphanages, something that spread across Europe in the 14th century, the mortality rates of abandoned children were no greater than those of other children. And apparently their lives were not necessarily harsher. Now, ironically, orphanages, which uh, by the start of the 15th century had become the preferred method of child abandonment, well, they were essentially death traps. What? And that's because in societies with very little awareness of hygiene and almost no real medicine, infectious diseases have and probably always will, spread like wildfire whenever and wherever people are gathered together in groups. Be advised, the symptoms to watch for are aggression, foaming from the mouth, deterioration of motor skills, and an unbelievable hunger. <coughs> So now, as far as Frau Holzacker is concerned, consider this quote from Professor Boswell. The overwhelming belief in the ancient world was that abandoned children were picked up and reared by someone else. It was indeed because they were so certain this would be the fate of abandoned children that some fathers preferred infanticide. (laughs) Interesting, And so we find, somewhat surprisingly, that a good medieval conscience, one perfectly in tune with the prevailing culture, would be quite reasonably untroubled by this woman's proposal. The sun is shining down on me. Yeah, so there it is. And yet, given the pathos of our fairy tale... Not to mention the fact that she seems to be deliberately donating her children to the gingerbread witch. Do we uh, really have enough evidence to rethink her identity as the devil of doubt? I don't want to tell you. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we find that the gingerbread in our story is not only missing a key ingredient, Selbstwertgefühl, it had a weird, bitter substitute baked into it, Selbstverliebtheit. Tastes like poop. So, as we've just seen, or heard, it turns out that Deciding whether or not Frau Holtzsaka lacks a conscience, it isn't our call. Why the fuck not? It's actually a question best left to the practice of philology and philologists. Wait, 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 wait. What did you say that was called? Philology was a very popular um, uh, college major in the Grimm's Zeitgeist. And a lot of it involves trying to understand a text from the point of view of the age and culture in which it was written. Now an interesting corollary to that is being able to work backwards and figure out in what age and in what cultural context a given text was written. Fascinating. And that's something we're actually doing with Hansel and Gretel, because as you remember from all The way back in episode one? No. Well, I said that in finding the truth within this fairy tale, we're going to find the truth about this fairy tale. That truth, including the name of its author. That is excellent. Okay, so getting back to what I was saying, bringing in the findings of Professor Boswell and his fascinating book about child abandonment and adoption. Throughout the history of Western Europe, it should be abundantly clear that whether or not Frau Holzacker has a good conscience, a bad conscience, or no conscience at all, what she's really lacking is... Spaghetti. Um, yeah, well, that too, but what I really meant was... Empathy. That's correct. Now, I could be wrong. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I see empathy as something that transcends the question of historical age or zeitgeist, at least in the context of Western Europe. Just know that empathy and conscience are the basic human elements said to be lacking in sociopaths. (laughs) You might want to change your toothbrush. Yikes! While the gingerbread witch of our story is a true sociopathic Hannibal Lecter, this woman is apparently not. Well, that's because we now know that her solution to the problem of famine doesn't fall outside the bounds of a normal medieval conscience. <laughs> Don't judge me, please. Looked at from a slightly different Historico-political angle? She becomes an amusingly accurate caricature of Thomas Malthus, the British professor of political economy we mentioned back in episode 11. Remember? No. Uh, yeah. I thought not. Well, his widely known and coldly logical theories, they held that disasters such as famine and war were perfectly natural and acceptable solutions to the problems of overpopulation. Oh, and back in episode 11, we also mentioned that Ebenezer Scrooge was said to be a caricature of Professor Malthus in his cold-blooded, unempathic principles. Oh, yeah, very nice. So let me give you another factoid of philologic significance. Please, don't do that. Well, it's one that'll give us indirect evidence for the date of authorship of Hensel and Gretel. Oh, boy. Dickens introduced Scrooge to the world in 1843, long after the Grimm's first published our story. And a good uh, 45 years after Malthus published, albeit anonymously, the first edition of his essay on the principle of population. Yes. Yeah, so what? Well, here's the thing. It's our intuition that sees Professor Malthus in the character of Frau Holsacker, and that's obviously because we ourselves already know about Malthus and his theories. But it's just possible that our fairy tale author also knew about Malthus. And so, just like Dickens, our author could have been lampooning the unempathic professor in the character of the equally unempathic Frau Holzhacker. No way. Well, if that were actually the case, it would mean that our story couldn't have been written before 1798 when Malthus first published his essay. Now a lot seems like really bullshit. Okay, so I admit, right now, the evidence for this is ridiculously slim. And yet, as intuitives, we shouldn't dismiss the idea out of hand. So let's just keep it in a handy little box marked intuitively conjectural speculative hermeneutics hermeneutics hermenu- 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 it's locked intuitively conjectural speculative hermeneutics requiring supplementary historical philologic corroboration Ooh, well isn't it just Mr. fancy words before we move on there's uh, one other point that's worth mentioning whether or not our fairy tale author was aware of Professor Malthus, she, or he, was definitely clued into the concept of empathy and what it means for someone not to have any. And that's a human problem, endemic to all ages, if not all cultures. We of today have, at least at some point, called it Argi Derg Derg. Narcissism. Anyway, that's what I call it. Let's hope you make the most of it, my boy. And while there's been an awful lot of equivocating and discussion over what the word narcissism actually means, especially in our zeitgeist and in Western culture, it's that very lack of empathy, coupled with bullying behavior, that this fairy tale seems focused on. Let's find out if they're friend or foe, and if they're foe, let's take care of those son of a bitches. Look at that. Argi derg derg. Now I doubt that our fairy tale author would have chosen to call it narcissism, or even Selbstverliebtheit. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. But that's the thing about intuition. Sometimes you just have no words to name what you perceive and know to be the truth. Sometimes all you have is a story. So, uh, what's the story, Richie? This story sure has plenty of narcissistic behavior baked right into it. Factory baked goodness in every little bite. Teil 2 In which somebody roasts the most famous goose in history And the story goes viral Well, that's no surprise at all However we choose to label a lack of empathy It seems pretty clear This lady doesn't even have an ounce of the stuff So, I repeat my blasphemous question. Based on her ruthless behavior, and as much as our culture might prefer to label her the devil of illegitimate doubt, couldn't she just as easily be the personification of a smug, if not terribly misguided, conscience? No way! Byron wrote, A quiet conscience makes one so serene. Christians have burnt each other, quite persuaded that all the apostles would have done as they did. <laughs> he was referring, of course, not just to the infamous fires of the Inquisition, but to the story of the most famous goose roast in European history. Oh, really? Alright, uh, Not exactly. The goose in question was actually Jan Hus, a Czech Bohemian Catholic priest who was burned at the stake for heresy in 1415 and whose ashes were then dumped into the Rhine. Hurry up! Schneller! Beeil euch! Hus, whose name, uh, I guess, means goose in Czechoslovakian, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, Now you roast a goose, but in one hundred years a swan shall come after me, over whom the fire shall have no power. This prophetic quote, while totally apocryphal, if not genuine fake news, It's stuck in the minds of Europeans for centuries. Why? Well, that's because Hus is loosely considered one of the forerunners of the Protestant Reformation. And the swan in question was Martin Luther, the Catholic priest who changed the course of European history almost exactly 100 years later. Yes, I know. Well, the sudden appearance of Jan Hus in this moment of our tale, that's no gratuitous coincidence, because his divergence from the authorized Vatican viewpoints, that mirrors our current heretical and blasphemous misgivings about conscience. How? Well, here's how and why. Huss was given numerous chances to retract his heretical views and save his own skin, even up to the last minute. And while he steadfastly refused, it was always on the grounds that his conscience wouldn't let him. Ah. Of course, as far as the Vatican was concerned, it wasn't the angel of conscience he'd been listening to and obeying. It was uh, that other guy. The one always sitting on the opposite shoulder. Unquestionably. Now, ironically, there was no such thing as a clear and conscientious Vatican viewpoint. Why, why, why? Because at the time, there were three separate rival popes. One living in Rome. One living in Pisa. And one... Living in Avignon. Ooh la la. And each one of them was accusing the other two of heresy. So with all three of them on the hot seat, they were busy playing a crazy game of musical, uh, shoulders. That none of them won. So who and how are we to judge? How do we sort out the truth here? I don't don't know. Well, I gotta tell you, I could spend a whole bunch of episodes trying to explain what Jan Hus was all about and where he was coming from. What his views were, what all the heretical hubbub was about, not to mention all the facts and factoids regarding why and how he ended up being burned alive at the stake. Must we? The genuine facts are fascinating. But then kind of like those three bickering antipopes. Philosophical, theological, and historical academia has been hashing over the ideas, the attitudes, and the motivations of all the various players involved, and they've been at it for centuries, with no end in sight. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, Never mind the fact that on December 18th, 1999, John Paul II officially said, regarding that famous goose roast, Oops. Sorry. Well, all we need to do here and now is to understand how Jan Hus, along with the considerable baggage of all of those facts, factoids, and academic interpretations, how he fits so perfectly in between the lines of our fairy tale. What are you talking about? Well, Jan Hus isn't just one of Hansel and Gretel's famous poverty-loving ancestors. He is indeed another one of those guys who felt the clergy should return to that old-time religion and be as poor and as pure as the apostles. It turns out though, there's a direct historically and culturally significant connection between Jan Hus and the author of our fairy tale, a connection you could almost call genetic. You're scaring me. And it is my firm belief that this fairy tale author wanted us to delve into all of the historical, theological, philosophical, and philological facts regarding Jan Hus. You're kidding, right? Hey, I kid you not. Now, the reasons for that will become clear in future episodes of the podcast as we progress through the fairy tale. For now, all we need to know can be summed up in two simple words. What are they? Sancta simplicitas. The fuck is that? Well, the collective European memory took all of those facts factoids, and opinions, and sum them up in those two simple words that literally mean holy simplicity. Uh? In other words, Sanca Simplicitas is quite simply a meme. What? Yeah, that's right. It's a meme and one that's every bit as potent as any and all of the 10-second cat videos and 2-second GIFs ever made. Are you kidding me? Now, I'm not going to get us too deep into the concept of a meme, except to say that a meme, it's like a virus passing itself on from person to person. And in the case of the most powerful memes, like Sancta Simplicitas, It's something that's so easy to remember, it gets enthusiastically passed on from generation to generation to generation, just like a gene. Now, the weird thing is that ideas can be easily spread and passed on as a meme without anyone knowing exactly what they mean. What the deepest and truest meaning encoded within that idea virus or meme actually is. In other words, how memes influence individuals and what their full significance is for the culture. I am confused. Take cat videos, for example. It may not seem like they have any meaning at all, at least not beyond the obvious, which can only amount to a tiny hit of dopamine and temporary relief of boredom from the endless tedium of a workday. I like that. They do indeed have a deeper layer of serious meaning, though. A purpose and significance known mostly to those uber-wealthy entrepreneurs whose algorithms drive the exchange of dollars for eyeballs. Believe it or not, the very same idea applies to fairy tales. Are you crazy? The most potent ones get told and retold. In other words, they're transmitted, not just from person to person to person, but from generation to generation, pretty much without anyone bothering to consider what deeper information might be encoded within them, and how that information affects and informs our attitudes and our actions. Bollocks, just bollocks. Yeah, well, this is no conspiracy theory. It's simply the nature of human communication. And in this case, Byron's three lines of poetry, mm, they never made it to meme status, although he himself practically did. Byron, an apparently wild and crazy guy, was super well-known in his lifetime and beyond as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Ooh, I like that. And in the poem I quoted, he was, at least in part, referring to Sancta Simplicitas. Because those two words, which encapsulated the entire story of Jan Hus, were as well-known a European meme as the story of Canossa, that we talked about in episode 12. Remember? No. Byron, to his credit, was explaining poetically what the truth within the meme of Sancta Simplicitas actually is. In other words, he was conveying the ugly, ironic truth that conscience itself can be responsible for unconscionable acts. No. Now I have to admit, I've never read all the way through Don Juan, the poem I took the quote about conscience from. Uh, excuse you? Well, the whole thing is actually 16,000 lines long, and it's hilarious. But when I came across it, I immediately knew that Jan Hus was implied in that stanza, because I remembered that crazy famous quote, Sancta Simplicitas. What's crazier, though, is that I only came across the quote in my reading of Jung, and he only mentioned it in one single sentence that he wrote in 1958. Now what's crazier still is that I only read that sentence once around 25 years or so ago. And like all powerful memes, it made such a serious impression. I never forgot it. So what's the story, John? So if you've never heard it before, The deeply etched story goes that Hus was trussed up at the stake with uh, no particular place to go. Of course, one group of onlookers uh, thought he was headed uh, south, while the other, more sympathetic group, figured he was uh, headed north. Hus himself, who had no doubt about his destination he couldn't help but utter this droll bit of two-word commentary as he watched some little old lady come forward to piously add her widow's mite of wood to the already huge pile reaching practically up to his nose. And much more, and much more, and much more, and much more. I wish you all that. Bye-bye, my friend. Given the context this lady was presumably following the dictates of her sincere but severely unempathic conscience. And over the centuries, the quote became a sort of shorthand witticism for people to use when commenting on what they judged to be the emphatic cluelessness of someone else. Oh, when I suppose you think that's funny, huh? Funny enough, in unpacking all the facts regarding Jan Hus which amounts to fully decoding the meme, the quote itself turns out to be a variant of a fictional variant of a very different factoid, taken out of context and put into the mouth of Jan Hus as a deliberate act of hagiography. What's that? It just means it was a story concocted to embellish the legend and memory of Hus as a saint. It was, to quote Professor Francis E. Dolan of UC Davis, a tall tale that existed only in the telling. I'm not saying nothing. Now, if you really want to know the truth here... No, sir. Well, here are the facts. The quote itself originally came from a famous letter written by St. Jerome, who died uh, in the year 420 a thousand years before Jan Hus had his goose cooked. According to 19th century historians, it wasn't even spoken by Jan Hus, but by a certain Jerome of Prague, a follower of Jan Hus, who was himself burned at the stake and on the very same spot as Hus, not quite one year after the execution of Hus. Oh, dear God! Now, according to 15th century eyewitness accounts, it seems obvious that neither one of those guys, Jan Hus or Jerome of Prague, actually said this. Hey, Jerry, what's the story? Somehow or other, Martin Luther, having discovered the extensive letters of Jan Hus and being gobsmacked by how much in tune he was with the guy, well, he began translating and publishing those letters always adding the apocryphal Sancta Simplicitas business to his introduction. And while it seems likely that Luther wasn't the author of the meme, as a superstar celebrity, he was certainly a super-spreader of ideas. And his mentioning the meme was the likely reason it went viral. Johnny, is this true? The rest is history the collective memory of Jan Hus became that of someone who dared to imply that a Vatican-approved conscience was anything but a blessing. That's the story! Oh, no. No matter what our faith is, the childlike serenity Byron wrote about and the simplicitas implied in the meme, well, that can only be available to someone living Blissfully free of doubts, or having, as Jung often remarked, a somewhat dull medieval mind. They say a wall is medieval. Well, so is a wheel. A wheel is older than a wall. Argydurga derg. That is to say, one incapable of handling uncertainty, complexity, or doubts of any kind, heretical or otherwise especially those regarding conscience. God bless me every Sunday. Now, For the rest of us, such holy simplicity is rarely an option. Our conscience is far too complex and troubled by multiple conflicting influences, concerns, and loyalties. It's really terrible. These days, instead of a clear and consistent universal, humanist code. Conscience is more often a paradoxical pastiche of individual, localized mores, customs, and priorities all swimming within a vast stew of other mixed, sometimes conflicting, and more collectively held values. It's all complicated. Now, some of those loyalties are clearly for our own good. And yet some of them are strictly for the benefit of the collective they represent. A collective that is only too willing to burn us at the stake for daring to argue with it. You are hormonally confused. Part 3 Teil 3 In which we get invited to a bris, with a barbecue celebration to follow. But we've got to drive through a busy construction zone in order to get there. That's uh, not funny. Whatever. Obviously, finding ourselves in perfect agreement with others on any singular matter of conscience, it's hardly a given. More to the point, though, Finding agreement within ourselves, well, that's often a process that resembles this typically domestic scene of nagging behavior between Hansel and Gretel's parents. How many times have we been over this? Ugh, with depressing regularity, something like this fairy tale mother willfully demands that we ignore our doubts, legitimate and otherwise, and listen to it, or else. Shut up and do it. But if this imperious and unempathic thing is actually our conscience, how did it uh, overcome its naturally complex, conflicted origins and become a kind of white picket fence, demarcating right from wrong? Shut up. How did it ever become an unequivocal dogmatic code for leading us onto the straight and narrow path, away from whatever it considers evil? You tell me! In other words, how did it lead that little old lady to want to make sure that Jan Hus was burned to a crisp? Shut up! Hannah Arendt, the 20th century philosopher, tells us, And this conscience is also supposed to tell us what to do and what to repent. Before it became the lumen naturale, or Kant's practical reason, It was the voice of God. Clever. She was referring, of course, to Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, where the great man of God calls conscience the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our Gad. Every valley shall be exalted. In every mountain and hill, prat low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough places, smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That's not funny. Now, Judeo-Christian culture may hold that conscience is what comes out of the mouth of the Lord, the voice of the authority of all authorities, but uh, for all the various feats of civil engineering this voice demands, it might as well just be known as the great homogenizer. It sounds so much more concerned with getting us all headed in the same direction rather than the right direction. No! And while we're on a biblical roll, in Genesis 17, the covenant between Abraham and Yahweh, well, also a strict matter of this very same conscience. And because circumcision is the outer sign of this covenant, circumcision is one of its unconditional demands. Uh Uh-oh. When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you. And will multiply you exceedingly. Wait a second. Did somebody do it? And of course, you remember from our last episode? No we brought up the similarity between the doings of our story and Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, when Abe's wife Sarah wants him to abandon his son Ishmael and the kid's mother, Abe's guma, Hagar, the bond girl, oh! her bond woman, this too is sanctioned by that very same conscience. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bad woman and her son, for the son of this bad woman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight. Because of his bond girl, or because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your band girl or band woman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. Some of us have standards. And finally, in Genesis 22, conscience famously demands that Abraham get rid of Isaac as a sign of blind obedience to the voice. It's for the better. At the last minute, of course, something else tells Abraham to ignore the order of that man behind the curtain. And uh, I gotta tell you, I think that other thing was something unrelated to the great homogenizer guy with the bulldozer mentality. I don't think so. And because the Bible calls this something else an angel of the Lord, we all assume and trust that this angel was indeed the mouthpiece of conscience. Got that right. In our Judeo-Christian tradition, changing the dinner menu from young boy to mutton, that's interpreted as an empathic act of mercy on the part of conscience. But to my utter moral consternation and ethical discomfort, I gotta tell you, I have my doubts about that their orthodox interpretation. That is so typical. There's something so imperious and unempathic about this oddly gratuitous test of loyalty to conscience. I think Abraham may have, in all actuality, flunked it. Completely out of your mind. I can't help seeing how Abraham's story mirrors what happens to us, when something within can't quite get itself to unempathically zig, especially when some conflicting but clearly empathic inner voice is urging us to zag. For the love of everything sacred and holy, would you please shut your yapa? The Bible assures us there was no such misdirection in the matter of Abraham and Isaac. But it does so by using its heavy authoritative hand to muffle our doubts and expunge any evidence of confusion from the record. Nonsense. Still, this dramatic episode, it ends in such a clumsily contrived case of deus ex machina It couldn't possibly have gone down so unequivocally. Maybe. I mean, outside of the Bible and Homer, with gods and goddesses always showing up in person, nobody ever hears the voice of the Lord, not with such literal and empiric clarity. Not unless they're off their meds. Oh! Well, maybe Abraham was indeed just following the orders of his conscience start to finish but it stands to reason that he could not have been any less conflicted than our whole Otherwise, he would have been just like that little old lady of the Jan Hus story, all too happy to squirt extra lighter fluid on the grill before barbecuing his son. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Well, maybe I'm the one who's hearing voices, but some dangerously contrary and heretical voice within tells me that whatever this redemptive angel represented, that wasn't conscience. Not good. Instead, out of the corner of an innocent, intuitive eye, I sense some theologic sleight of hand, tricking us into believing that there's a link between this angel and conscience. And so I'm forced to ask myself, what if it's all a hoax? No, it's not. What if the real voice crying out in the wilderness, the real voice of empathy, has nothing at all to do with conscience and the great homogenizer, but instead has been gratuitously co-opted? Oh my God. Oh my God. Could it possibly be that this kind angel who saved Isaac represents the character that normally sits on the shoulder opposite conscience? Holy shit! <laughs> well, that, of course, is an enormous can of worms that's best left unopened. Roger, Dad! But what if, instead of being the messenger of conscience, this angel represents something completely separate? And for now, let's call that separate something yeah, empathy. All right, if you insist. It's certainly true that conscience is sometimes paired with empathy, and that's what we tend to call compassion. So was it compassion that spared Isaac's life? Or was it something else? Something that arose to override the fanatically strict rules of an authoritarian conscience demanding his death? Honestly, I have no clue. Well, before we can answer that, Let's remember that our fairy tale woman is nagging her husband to do something wrong. That much is clear. What's also clear is that we have never let ourselves consciously understand that her lack of empathy it doesn't make her the devil of doubt. Then again, leaving the safety and comfort of scriptural certainty behind, that means daring to see her as a true personification of. Conscience, the dogmatic authority we've all been taught to trust, obey, and internalize, and that occasionally forces us to do something tragically self-destructive. Oh, no. Something that leads us, as Henry Miller put it, to slaughter our finest impulses. Oh, crap. Every day, we slaughter our finest impulses. That is why we get a heartache when we read those lines written by the hand of a master and recognize them as our own, as the tender shoots which we stifled because we lacked the faith to believe in our own powers, our own criterion of truth and beauty. We're getting slaughtered down here. In our next episode... We take in a carnival sideshow, where we see the bearded lady, hear a little Shakespeare, and uh, end up listening to crickets. No, 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 I meant just uh, one cricket. You know, that singing cricket guy. The one that Walt Disney made famous. Yeah, him. Although, speaking of crickets, at least now, there seem to be more than just the original tour three of you guys out there listening in on the podcast. Oh, my God. And while I'd love to hear from you. All I ask is would you please, please, please keep spreading the word? That'll make, like, what, the uh, eight or nine of us now will like the show? All we need to do is make sure... We keep talking. Yeah, well, uh, don't forget. You can find full transcripts, including all the voice and music credits for each episode, on the website. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Www- 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 www. You'll also find extra links within the transcripts, giving you more information related to the European history mentioned in each episode. Oh my. Alrighty then. Ciao. Avoy, uh. This recording will self destruct in five seconds.